Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Phoenix, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on this episode of Word, NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month is winding down and writers are feverishly trying to finish 50,000 words by November 30th. One of my coworkers' daughter, who at the time was, I think, in middle school, participated and won and kept winning. And I was like, wow, if she can do it, I could definitely do it, right? <laughs> Plus, music icon and one of Arizona's beloved daughters, Linda Ronstadt, has a new memoir out. Most people, they think they're going to stop immigration. Most people come on an airplane with a visa and they overstay their visa. It's an incredible waste of time, energy, and money. These lands are contiguous and to impose an artificial line there is just stupid. But first, the application window for the National Endowment for the Arts Big Read Grants is open. The program focuses on the goal of inspiring meaningful conversations, artistic responses, and new discoveries and connections in each community, according to the organization's website. Josh Feist is Director of Grant Making at Arts Midwest, one of six arts agencies in the country that helps facilitate the program. The NEA Big Read started back in 2006 in response to a report titled Reading at Risk, which was commissioned by the National Endowment for the Arts. And that report presented the results from the literature segment of the Survey of Public Participation in the Arts conducted by the Census Bureau. So that's where they've been doing most of their studies about the nation's reading habits. And that survey asked more than 17,000 adults if during the previous 12 months they had read any novels or short stories, poetry or plays in their leisure time some you know things that weren't required for work or school. The results of that study were not encouraging, and subsequent studies have shown that this is still an issue uh, in terms of reading. So currently about half the country reads for pleasure either digitally or in print. That's just what I was about to ask you if it is still a problem. Let's shift then to how the NEA Big Read Grant works and who has the ability to qualify to apply. So to be clear, the NEA Big Read program is not a literacy-focused program. It's more of an arts program. It's about introducing people to the great works of literature and inviting audiences into those stories through the vehicle of the arts. So it's really a program for people that are able to read, but just have, for whatever reason, historically chosen not to read as part of their hobby or leisurely activities. So through this diverse set of books that the NEA and a reading committee helps curate, the communities that are involved in the program can uh, broaden their understanding of their world and their neighbors and themselves through the power of a shared reading experience. So the program aims to inspire meaningful conversations, artistic responses, new discoveries and connections in each community. And what this might look like on the ground is that the awarded organization would bring the author in to speak or a, or a relevant author that could speak on the themes of the main book. It could mean a series of exhibitions of artistic responses to the content in the book. Uh, book discussions are a part of it. I've seen uh, poetry slams, open mic nights, 
and then stage adaptations of a few books that have been on the list historically as well. Now, there can be some literacy components built into the program too, It's uh, but it's more about inspiring folks to read and engage in great works of literature. There's lots of freedom for applicants to sort of build a program that they want to see that would resonate with their community based on one of the book choices. So the way it works, if an organization wants to apply, they need to pick one of the books that the NEA has curated on their list. And currently it's about 15 books. There's a range of different authors and subject matter in those choices, along with different genres in those choices as well. So it's hopefully there's something there for just about any community across the U.S. Eligible applicants include 501c3 organizations of all types, not just arts organizations. Uh, There can be units of government, so a city could apply, for instance. Universities, higher ed can apply, and federally recognized Native nations can also apply. The maximum request is $20,000, and the minimum request is $5,000. So it's also a matching grant. So if you apply for $20,000, there needs to be a $20,000 match, and that can consist of a number of different sources. It can be um, salaries and wages that the applicant organization already pays its staff. It can be in-kind. It can be volunteer hours. It can be other grants. I'm glad that you mentioned there's an overall artistic reach, and this may be kind of a stretch, but we talk to a lot of writers on this show. It's called Word After All, and the process of writing and where and when they sort of develop that. And of course, a lot of them talk about reading at a young age and the importance of that and how writing is, after all, an art. And a lot of people do not think about that. But I I love the descriptions of the responses that people will come up with as to how they will carry out the project and bring it to fruition with the grant money that they've received. What is your role, Josh, with respect specifically to the NEA? So I'm the director of grant making at an organization called Arts Midwest. We are one of six regional arts organizations in the country. You can think of it as a regional arts organization sitting between the federal government and the state arts agencies. So my role is that of the project director. So we are essentially the grants administrators for this program. So we collect the applications. We send them to a panel of experts that uh, can advise on this type of programming. And then we administer the awards and see them through uh, until all of the projects are completed. And then we report back to the NEA on the results. Last question, when is the deadline to apply for grants? There's an intent to apply deadline, which is on the 18th of January. And then if you are forwarded to complete an application, those final applications are due on the 26th of January. So we encourage anybody that's interested to visit the Arts Midwest website and uh, submit your intent to apply before the middle of January. Josh Feist, want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about the NEA Big Read Grants Program. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. You can find out a bit more about the program on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month is winding down, and writers are feverishly trying to finish 50,000 words by November 30th. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. 
It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You have your favorites, favorite online store, favorite park to take the kids or the dog. It's the season to get out of the house. And KJZZ is your favorite news station. Stay connected to important updates and entertainment, the number one news station in the Valley and your source for all your favorites. Become a member today at KJZZ.org. Whether your business is new or deeply rooted, large or small, you can share what's great about it while supporting a vital community service, KJZZ. It's a fact that listeners trust and support companies that sponsor KJZZ, and by becoming a sponsor, you build a stronger connection to everyone in your community. Get connected today at SponsorKJZZ.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. It's the final sprint to complete 50,000 words this month for NaNoWriMo. On our last episode, we talked to One Valley Municipal Liaison for the annual contest about her efforts to help others hit that mark and her own project. As we count down the remaining days in November, we caught up with another one, Erin Lorandos. I work in libraries, and I've been a writer my whole life. My grandfather had me memorizing Shakespeare when I was two or three years old. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> I was probably a really cute parlor trick, but, you know, <laughs> literature has always been a, a huge part of my life. And so it seemed logical going through school to go into English and then into library science. Well, I mean this sincerely. Uh, I know a lot of, obviously, firefighters, police officers, first responders are called heroes and well-deserved, and they're often thanked for their service along with military folks. But I really appreciate the service of librarians because I think in so many ways you are really unsung heroes. A library is more than just about books. Often it's a center for so many disadvantaged people. It's so true. And, you know, especially in today's world where people are not even able to operate without having internet at home and things like that, we've, we've really been able to offer way more than what people think of when they think of libraries. The main reason we wanted to talk to you, Erin, is because, of course, NaNoWriMo is happening and running out of time, though, as we close in on the uh, back half of this month. You mentioned that you'd always wanted to be a writer. You've been writing for a long time. But when did you first encounter NaNo? I've heard about NaNo pretty much since its inception. And in the first couple of years, you know, it's been over 20 years now, I thought, wow, that's really cool. But there's no way that you could get to 50,000 words. And so I sort of had it in the back of my mind, kept it on the back burner. I had coworkers at the time. I was working at a university library in Wisconsin. And uh, one of my coworkers' daughter, who at the time was, I think, in middle school, uh, participated and won and kept winning. And I was like, wow, if she can do it, I could definitely do it, right? <laughs> so <laughs> so as I you know, kind of got out of school and got into my career and things like that, I thought, okay, now maybe it's a good time to try. And the first year I tried to do it, I was working full time and I made a huge mistake of trying to write a historical fiction piece. And I found myself spending way too much time researching instead of actually writing. And so I didn't win. And so then a few years passed and I was like, yeah, I knew it was going to be hard, you know, so I, I didn't really try to pick it up again. And then actually in 2020, I was unemployed during the month of November. And I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to do it, this is a year to do it. So I wrote like it was my job. And <laughs> I won. 
And I was very proud of myself. And then 2021 rolled around and I thought, well, I should try it again. I was working full time by then. And I thought, all right, whatever, I'm going to do it. I'll try. And then I won again. And I figured, okay, well, then it wasn't a fluke. I am able to write 50,000 words. And I think really, to me, the main thing to keep in mind, if you're tackling a goal like that, is don't look at 50,000 words, look at the daily goals, you know, that 1667 is magical. And this year, you know, I'm on par again to win. And I've just been looking at it as 1667 every day. You that's know, that's what I was a lot about to more. ask. For those who have absolutely no idea what we're talking about, 1667 <laughs> is not a date in history. It is the <laughs> daily word count to get to 50,000 words, 30 days, of course, in November. What is the current project that you're working on right now, Erin? So I am actually writing the second in a cozy mystery series. The first one I wrote during that 2020 year, and it focuses on librarians and it happens in library land. And um, that first one, I was really looking at how the pandemic was changing the landscape of librarianship as kind of a backdrop to your traditional cozy mystery themes with an amateur sleuth and some conflict with the local law enforcement and all of that sort of thing. And then last year, my my project was a complete departure from that model. But this year, I thought, oh, I'm going to go back to that because, you know, it's easy to write something that you know. And of course, working in libraries and having that as as my day to day, it seems like an easy thing to write to me. So I've gone back to that project. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Write what you know. You mentioned one thing that keeps you motivated, focusing on that daily word count. What are some other tips? Because after all, you've been kind of a mentor to folks here in the Valley, but what are some of the tips that you would pass along to them aside from using the month of October as Plottober, where you plot things out, do a lot of research, that kind of thing. But, you know, right in the midst of nano, how do people stay motivated and what are some of your suggestions? So actually, I'm a bad plotter. I'm a pantser. Um, <laughs> so... I do right by the seat of my pants, even though I helped put on some of those Plottober events this year as a municipal liaison. Uh, But no, actually, my best tip other than looking at small chunks is to do word sprints. I find that that timer clicking down, you know, that 10 or 15 minutes where all I can do is write is really, really helpful. I mean, I'll hit, you know, five, 600 words in a 10 minute sprint. And then you look back on that and you say, oh my gosh, I could write all 1,667 words in, you know, under an hour if I kept doing this. And so I find that I am very motivated by challenge. And that's probably why I only write novel length pieces during the month of November, because, If I had all the time in the world, I wouldn't do it, right? I would never get to those numbers. And I think as well, perhaps another thing, maybe focus just on the writing, the act of getting words on a word processor or if you write by hand still without editing as you go along, come back and edit, right? Yes. And it's funny, um, both of the projects that I have completed that I've finished, this will be hopefully my third win. They tell you not to look at it in the month of December and come back to it later because you're so in it while you're writing it that you can't really have that perspective to edit after the month is over, at least not right away. However, I have found that I'm very bad at going back and actually taking a look at the work again and, you know, (laughs) doing the editing process. Although the rest of the year, I'm still a writer. I write poetry primarily. And I find with that, 
I'm sort of in the Jack Kerouac fields when it comes to that, when it's the, you know, first out, best out kind of mindset where I don't edit my poetry nearly at all. And so tackling editing something like a novel, even a short one of 50,000 words is something I haven't quite been able to figure out yet. <laughs> well, Aaron Lorando, so I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about Nano in general and, of course, your own personal efforts. We really appreciate your time, Aaron. Of course. Thank you so much, Tom. I really had a great time. You can find out a bit more about Aaron Lorandos on our website, word.kjzz.org. Coming up, music icon and one of Arizona's beloved daughters, Linda Ronstadt, has a new memoir out. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. It's a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can get a lot of things delivered these days, and now that includes the latest Arizona news from KJZZ's Sun Up podcast. I'm Phil Latzman. Everything you need to know to start each day delivered to you in this handy little podcast. Go to kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts and download KJZZ's Sun Up today. More than ever before, KJZZ depends on donations from listeners to fund all of the crucial resources behind every moment of our coverage. So please be generous now and become a member of KJZZ at kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Our final guest on this episode is a beloved musician from Tucson. In October, she released Feels Like Home. It's a memoir that includes photos and also recipes, just in time for the holidays if you're feeling like trying a Sonoran staple. Linda Ronstadt wrote the book in collaboration with Lawrence Downs, a writer and editorial board member of the New York Times. When we talked recently, I was curious how the memoir came to fruition, as well as how Downs became involved with the project. Well, Lawrence and I were friends, and I liked his writing, and he liked my writing. We did a, a road trip together to the little town of Banamichi in Sonora, Mexico, where my grandfather was born. It's a beautiful little town, and he was enchanted by it. And he wrote a travel piece about the Sonora Desert and how it is a region that exists on both sides of the border. It doesn't recognize the border. And how, through the eyes of my great-grandmother, how things are, were the same and how they've changed. In many ways, the fence migrated, the border migrated. Because what is now Tucson used to be Mexico. My grandmother was born in Mexico, and she became an Arizona citizen. But after the United States stole a big piece of property from Mexico... I wanted to talk about this, I guess what I would kind of call a sonic image that appears in the intro of the book and also in the back cover, and I'll just read it. If this book were a radio signal, you might first pick it up on an Arizona highway well south of Phoenix, coming into the glow of Linda's hometown. It would be playing something old and Mexican from a time when the border was a more agreeable place. When did you first notice the border, which some refer to as an imaginary boundary, being criminalized and also the people who crossed it being criminalized? Well, it was fully militarized during the Bush administration. And there were a lot of people dying because of it. Most people, they think they're going to stop immigration. Most people come on an airplane with a visa and they overstay their visa. It's an incredible waste of time, energy, and money to build that fence. It doesn't keep anything out except migrating animals. And people that like the Tohono O'odham, whose reservation go, has, has the border running right through it. These lands are contiguous. And 
to impose an artificial line there is just stupid. And I went to the border the day that, that Trump declared the border an emergency. There was no emergency there. There was a lot of razor wire on the Mexican side that the Americans put up. But there was no emergency. People were skateboarding. They were picking up their children from school. They were running errands. And there weren't hardly any people on the street. But the ones that were doing they have a perfectly legitimate reason to be there. So in the meantime, animals get trapped in the razor wire. Children are attracted to it or get hurt. It's stupid. It looks like it looks like some war zone. This podcast is about literature in Arizona and the region. And in so many ways, I think that songs are like books and, and maybe particularly poetry. I mean, they tell stories of human choices and experiences. And we talk a lot about where writers get their ideas and how they craft them to completion. And I just wanted to discuss briefly your writing process a bit when it comes to songwriting. And what gives you inspiration? I'm not a songwriter. <laughs> I only wrote one song I ever recorded. <laughs> I'm not a songwriter. I'm an interpreter. When you say you're an interpreter, what do you mean by that? Well, I find a song that expresses my feelings about myself, kind of self-centered. <laughs> and then I, I try to learn as much as I can about the, the context the song originated from and different ways to sing it, and then I sing it. Sometimes it's a swing and a miss, and sometimes it's a hit. It's hard to tell. You can't ever tell when you're doing it. Another thing that I love about this book is that it includes photos and family recipes for some amazing food. Again, along with music and writing, I kind of think of those as examples of permanence, and we pass these things along as part of human experience. Connection. It's part of culture. Yeah, culture, right? The Sonoran Desert is a very distinct culture including the food. The food is not fancy. If you want fancy Mexican food, you have to go farther south. But it's meat and potatoes, the equivalent of meat and potatoes up here. It's beans and tortillas. And it's ranch food. You know, it's what they, the ranchers and farmers raised around there. Tomatoes, onions, a variety of chilies, and corn, and wheat. It was a wheat belt. It was the breadbasket of Mexico. The Sonora River Valley has rich alluvial soil. Chilies and Tomatoes and peppers and stuff that come out of there are particularly fragrant and particularly delicious. And they grew a type of wheat there that just makes better tortillas, makes better pie crust, has more flavor. Mexican wheat has different genetic properties that affect the flavor and the texture and the color of, of anything made with wheat. And they had really delicious wheat. And the Americans raised ones that had been genetically altered. So Mexican tortillas that are from Sonora, where it's a particular specialty, and um, can pat them out real big. They're as, as wide as your arm. They're like a steering wheel. They cook them outdoors on a fire on a comal. And so they have a little bit of smoke in them. And they're just delicious. It's like the difference between a good pie crust and a lousy pie crust. You can't learn to make those tortillas by reading my book. <laughs> you can learn what goes into them. But the women that can make those big tortillas start when they're children. And they're real good at it. It's labor-intensive, though. Along with food, if you had to tell someone who's never been to Arizona, what's the first image that pops into your mind that you'd share with them? In other words, what feels like home in Arizona to you? Sororo cactuses, they only grow within 100 miles of Tucson. And they don't grow anywhere else in the world. And they're very, very old. It takes... 100 years for one to grow up to my chest height. 
they're old and wise, and they're being destroyed by things like border fences and air pollution and climate change, too, because they live in a very narrow range of temperatures. If you get too hot or too cold, they, they can't survive. 38 best-selling singles, 24 awards. Feels Like Home from Linda Ronstadt is out now. Ms. Ronstadt, thank you so much for sharing some of your time with us here on Word. I really appreciate you. It's my pleasure. Portions of Word have been nominated for Edward R. Murrow and Public Media Journalists Association Awards. You can email us with a comment about this episode or make a suggestion for a future one. The link is on our website. I'm Tom Maxidon, and we'll be back in early December. Thanks so much for listening. Word. Word? Word. What's the word? Thanks for listening to Word, a podcast about literature in Arizona and the region. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org or wherever you get your podcasts.